Hey, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Gabe BC, and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'll be having a conversation with another artist, curator, inventor, robot, museum specialist, or CEO about how creative people are working with tech. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. All right, let's get this week's episode started off. Alfredo Salazar Caro is a multimedia artist who works at the intersection of portraiture, installation, documentary, virtual reality, video, and sculpture. Alfredo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So how did you get uh, started with art? Like, what's, what, do you have a background in painting or... Uh, sure. I early, I mean, I've, I've always been really creative all my life. Uh, ever since I was little, I used to love drawing. I used to, you know, uh, exchange Power Rangers drawings for people's juice cartons when I was, you know, <laughs> a toddler. And, uh, so it's always just come really easy to me. Um, in high school, I started picking it up a little bit heavier. I started getting into like clay and sculpture and actually that kind of gave me like, the background that I needed to understand like three-dimensional space better. Um, but then I actually wanted to go to med school. So it was a totally different route. Uh, hmm. And then once I started that jam, I decided that it was uh, not really for me and art just pulled me back in and I went all in. So. Was there like a moment in med school when you were? <laughs> yeah, you know, pre-med pre rather. Yeah. Uh, I never made it to med school, but um you know, it was just like the realization that I wasn't going to have any kind of creative freedom up until, you know, sometime as a middle-aged doctor, if I decided to go that route. And, you know, I was really into like neuroscience and um, I really, you know, at the time I was already like fascinated by the idea of like computer brain interfaces. And, you know, I wanted to like, you know, get into the, you know, kind of like avant-garde uh forward-thinking side of uh you know medical science but you know i got pretty discouraged by you know what seemed like decades of studies and residencies and all the stuff before you could actually you know start getting to the creative side of things so as i was doing that i was taking art classes uh and then you know that just started pulling me more and more and i understood that you know um, my creative side really needed that nourishing so i just went in. And when did you start working with like tech or digital art? Um, so that was until later on, um, once I started going to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So I started going to SAIC uh, once I knew that I wanted to, you know, just be an artist. Um, and I went in as a sculptor and an installation artist. And that was really what I wanted to do. Uh, I had already started tinkering with video by that time, uh, including it in my installations a little bit, thinking of it as like, you know, textures for objects more than video itself. Um and I actually ended up taking a class there called Prehistories of New Media and me being like an ignorant sculptor, <laughs> meathead, I was like, oh, this must be like materials, like new materials. And um, I took it and, you know, I went into the class. There was this professor, Paul Hertz, who is still a really good friend of mine, a great new media artist. Um, and... Uh, you know, he started talking about like Marshall McLuhan and like the media's the message and all this. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, this <laughs> makes no sense to me. I don't understand, but I stayed. And, uh, regardless of, of my confusion and, you know, I got hooked. I got really hooked. Uh, and I realized very quickly that the most powerful tool that an artist could have in the 21st century is a computer. Hmm. I mean, it's really the most powerful tool anybody can have. But, you know, for, for a creative um, understanding what the power of uh, computers are, um, you know, w was a huge leap for me. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up um, I grew up mostly without technology. Um, I grew up in Mexico uh, and, you know... I never really had access to much things. You know, every, everything that happens in America comes to Mexico, like, you know, five to 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And even then it's usually not really affordable for most people anyway. Um, and my dad is actually an IT guy. So, you know, we ended up moving to America because he had an engineering job and, you know, that job allowed him to, to, uh, eventually make the leap and move to America. And it wasn't until really, I don't think I had a computer until I was like 18, 19, even though a lot of my friends already had computers and all this stuff, but I had no interest in it. So it just kind of 
yeah, that was like my intro to to technology. Was there a moment where you remember using tech in your work that you were like, okay, now it makes sense? Like, was there a specific piece? Yeah, you know, I really think it was um, around the time that I was taking that class. I also like, you know, I decided to get more into it. And at the time, uh, Chicago was like really heavy on, you know, we used to call it the Chicago dirty new media scene or like the glitch <laughs> scene, you know, and it was... Uh, it, for me, it was even more fascinating because it wasn't just like, oh, let's make like really beautiful CGI renders, but it was rather like, okay, let's push these computers to the limit and almost break them. And when they're like screaming for help, that's the art right there, like right at that moment of like destruction and and, and building at the same time. And for me, that was like amazing, you know. Um, so I remember I started learning um Maya and, you know, using these like super sophisticated softwares to make like GIFs, you know, mm. just like really cheesy animated GIFs. Uh, and, and I really had this moment where like, you know, I'm looking at these things and I'm like, this is what painting was supposed to look like. You know, this is what like, you know, and I always say this, like if the surrealists had had VR, like they would have gone insane. Like that's exactly what they wanted. You know, like they were only able to like present this like, moment in this window of of these scenes but in reality they were depicting you know live movement they were depicting like you know uh, scenes of life you know uh, but they were limited by their tool sets and by their time and mm -hmm. now that we have all this technology it was like this this is it like this is the one so i think it was like that time so that's probably like around like 20 2011 or something when I was just like, okay, shit, like this is it. Right. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes when you break the technology, it becomes more interesting than the tech itself. Right. right? Everybody's yeah. got this like super ultra clean, glossy look nowadays, right. to things, which I kind of reject too. I'm like, oh, I want to make something that looks dirty. Right. You know, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's kind right. of broken and uh, more ready made in a way. Yeah. And it's exactly kind of like the same thinking behind like, you know, these abstract expressionists, right? It's like, okay, like, We've done representation. We know how to paint a hyper-realistic person. Like, why not just break all the rules, you know? And I mean, obviously, you know, abstract expressionism broke a lot of rules that are now tropes, you know? And, you know, Dirty New Media and Glitch was kind of doing that for me. It was like, this is the contemporary way, like the the punk rock of, of uh, you know, new media art. So it felt really good to to witness that and to be influenced by that. And what are, so lately you've been working on a VR documentary called Dreams of the Jaguar's Daughter. Mm -hmm. um, you want to tell us a little bit about how that came about? Sure. So, um, you know, as an, as an immigrant to the States, um, you know, one thing that really uh, happened to me once I came here is that I, I started to understand my identity very differently. You know, in Mexico, we're all Mexican. So, you know, there, there's no differentiation between, you know, we, we make fun of each other by like what state you come from or what kind of accent you have. But, you know, it, 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 that's hardly racism. There's definitely colorism. There's definitely racism, but it's not as uh, overt as it is in America. Once I came to America and, you know, I would tell people oh, I'm Mexican and like all of a sudden I would get hit with all these like, you know, all, all this sudden racism that I had never encountered before. Um, so. Uh, what happened is that I, I really started like to try to understand my identity and the way that I would do it was through artwork. So um, for a while, I started developing this series called Border Crossing Beta, which is um, essentially uh, simulations of uh, people crossing the border. Um, and this is, of course, like after I started playing with like uh, video game engines as, as, as tools of production and stuff like that. Um, so um, the idea with border crossing beta was to, you know, create these simulations, create these installations where the simulations would live inside of and then allow people to experience them and go in there and, you know, explore the desert and, you know, find little bits and pieces of people's lives and try to, you know, catch a glimpse of what that that moment is like. But I was doing it all from first, like my personal experience, hmm. and then I was doing it from research. Um and my idea had always been to travel to Central America and and start doing the research from there and follow the migratory pattern and get to the U.S. and interview people along the way. Um, and thanks to this grant from Tribeca and YouTube, I was able to finally do it. Um, but and let's that, get back quickly. Yeah, For Border sure. Crossings Beta, um, that piece is a sculptural installation. Though, That's right. right? Yeah. And, and how does it? how is it laid out for people who haven't seen it? 
Sure. So it, it actually has existed in several iterations. The the first one uh, was kind of like using the visual language of uh, of the desert and the border. So it was um, a cinder block construction, um, like a small, almost like a cinder block pool that was filled with sand. Uh, and then it had a screen that was buried halfway in the sand where mm. you could see the interactive video game. And then you would have uh, controllers basically using like a QWERTY keyboard setup and a mouse to navigate. And that was, you know, it was made with Unity. The um, third iteration or Border Crossing Beta 3.0 was kind of the same idea, but expanded and in virtual reality. So um, it actually, instead of just being a cinder block pool, it was actually a whole cinder block building or like a small building about three meters by three meters, which is like what, 10, 10 feet by 10 feet, more or less, and, and about eight feet tall. Um, and then the floor was completely flooded with sand. So when you stepped, you had to step into it. Um, and then you would find a VR headset and another screen buried in the sand, uh, that would show whatever the person in the VR headset was seeing. Uh, and this time, uh, the experience was based on one of my friends who was dropped off by a coyote in the middle of the desert in like a halfway constructed spot. And then, you know, um, while they were waiting for, uh, another coyote to pick him up for the rest of the way. Um, so th these were kind of like the, the iterations that were kind of like shorter versions. And then eventually, uh, dreams of the Jaguar's daughter came. And like I said, you know, through this Tribeca grant, I was able to actually go down to Central America, uh, to Guatemala and travel and talk to people and really get an idea of what's happening from the ground, you know? Um, because, you know, Immigration experiences are always different, and my immigration experience was comparatively very easy, right? Uh, you know, like I said earlier, like my dad got a job, and that job led him to an opportunity in America, and then that led to the opportunity of us coming to live with my dad in America. You know, uh, the the people that I've been talking to, I mean, first of all, they actually end up spending a lot more money than we ever did, and you know, with with almost no certainty that they're going to make it or, or, you know, with literally risking their lives, um, you know, through this really treacherous uh, trek. Um, so me and uh, a couple of friends, uh, Gregory Catan, who was a producer in Dreams of the Jaguar's Daughter, and uh, Tarek Turkey, who was also a producer and a filmmaker uh, as part of this project, um, we went down to Central America and started following the migratory pattern um, which was incredible. Um, and this was a research trip specifically? It, it was a research trip with the intention of making this VR piece. Mm. So I went down there with uh, a bunch of 3D scanners and a 360 camera. I was using a Yi Halo, which was in reality entirely too gigantic for <laughs> what we were trying to do, but it was really cool to have it. Um, and uh, the craziest thing is that completely unintentionally, we ended up uh, intercepting the migrant caravan as it was crossing from Guatemala into Mexico. So, you know, literally we just stumbled upon this historical moment of, of you know, suddenly having, I mean, the numbers are uncertain. You know, they, some people were saying there are 7,000 people. Some people were saying there are 13,000 people. I don't really know. It was a ton of people, you know, all of them families of, you know, people with children and elderly folks and, uh, you know, pregnant women with a bunch of children and, you know, carrying whatever little possessions they felt it was necessary to bring with them. And, um, you know, just with the hopes of, you know, having the safety in numbers and, and we just happened to be caught in the middle wow. of it. Um, so that was an incredible experience and, um, you know, felt really um, compelled to to tell those stories so then dreams of the jaguar's daughter became very much about this so essentially what dreams is about it, it tells uh the story of this of this trek from central america to to the u.s um through the eyes of Achik, who is a fictional character that is meant to represent uh, kind of like the spirit of everybody that has been doing the crossing together. So Achik is more more like an entity than a human. Um, and she uh, 
as she meets you, she tells you her dreams and memories of this crossing. And all these dreams are based on the interviews that we did and, and the, the the things that we saw and the footage that we captured. And that um, footage is present in the three in the piece, right? Correct. So so the piece is composed of uh 360 video is composed of actual footage and it's composed of 3D scans, uh, all of which we took, um, you know, throughout the trek and in different locations. Like I said, we follow the migratory pattern. So we started in Central America and then we crossed all of Mexico, um, going through Oaxaca, going through Mexico City, going through the north, through Tijuana, um, Baja California, and then getting up into uh, San Diego and then following it that through to Arizona and spending time in the Arizona desert. So, um, you know, we were like really, really going there and, you know, spending time with people that were in shelters uh, that were either um, on their way and they were just stopping by in a place where they could, you know, recharge for a couple of days. Uh, we talked to people that were had been deported. Uh, we actually spent some time in a town in Guatemala that was uh, composed of uh, people that had been deported from, at the time, the largest uh, raid of immigrants um, in history, which actually was under the Obama administration. I think it was 400 immigrants that were all rounded up in one hit and all sent back to you know different countries. Um, so we we saw a town that was essentially all de- deportees. Um, you know, so so all all these stories and all these people are are portrayed in Dreams of the Jaguar's Daughter and kind of represented through through this character, a cheek. Um, yeah, so so that's what's happening right now, and uh, that was actually already showcased at Tribeca Film Festival uh, earlier in 2019, and it's currently uh, on tour. Uh, so right now, I'm working on episodes two and three. Uh, to hopefully complete it by 2021 with a full installation to kind of follow mm. the 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 um, the aesthetic of border crossing beta two and three and then push uh, dreams of the jaguar's daughter to also be this like fully immersive installation as well as a 360 experience as well as something you can see on YouTube and all of the above. And the first chapter is on YouTube already, right? It is it's a 360 piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I watched it. I mean, I think it's amazing. I love the the mix of sort of like the surreal nature with the documentary footage too. Um, I just thought it was really fascinating how you created, I mean, it's what you were talking about before, but stepping into sort of a hallucination or a dream, but then at the same time having these very real people. So it's not completely like we're in, you know, <laughs> dream world there. Right. And that, you know, that was really important to me because, um, you know, it's really easy to make uh, a documentary of this moment because it's so intense. And of course, as we were there, you, we were surrounded by press, you know. I mean, we we actually got there before a lot of the press came in. A lot of the big media people came in on the second day, actually. Uh, but, you know... Um, obviously people are already working on documentaries. I've been contacted by a bunch of people that want footage and all this Mm. stuff. So I didn't want to make just another documentary. I really wanted to make something that was um, a poem, a poem for, for the migrants, for, for, you know, like an ode to them, because to me, the most impressive thing about the whole moment was the strength of the people. You know, it was unbelievable to me to see that level of solidarity. I've never seen anything like it in my life, you know, and it was actually really hard to come back to New York and, you know, come back to this like hyper capitalist hustle central where everybody is out for themselves and everybody's just like, you know, looking for their next opportunity. Everybody's looking for, you know, how can I, you know, step on somebody else so that I can get right. something that they needed or how can I just like, you know, get all this money for myself or for my project or for my whatever, you know, and meanwhile, in the opposite side of the the continent, you know, we have these people that are, you know, just trying to live decently, just trying to not get killed on a regular basis, just trying to have like decent food and water and air, you know, and, and making this gargantuan effort that I don't even think that anybody that I personally know would ever do um, just to 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 come and actually be subservient to people in America, which is unreal, um, but but actually very real. So I wanted to really emphasize them and their power and, and 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 make something that uplifted them and also that showed the real things that are happening while at the same time giving a hopeful message. Um, because it's also very easy to take this type of event and just show it and say, look at how bleak things mm. are because they are truly dark. But, you know, for me, 
when I see the eyes of the people that are doing this, like they're doing it with the hope that at the end of this, uh, this, this, this odyssey, there is respite, you know, and, and that's really what I wanted to go with, uh, with this piece. Do you see other, I'm curious about like, you know, other filmmakers that use VR, um, or 360 video sort of to capture specific moments in time. And there's this whole d uh, debate about the empathy machine mm -hmm. and whether VR is actually an empathy machine or not. Is that something that you think about when you're making a piece like this? I mean, certainly. And, you know, it it, it is an empathy machine. But the thing about VR is that it's, I mean, I think double-edged sword doesn't even <laughs> uh, begin to, to describe what it is uh, because the same way that you can generate empathy, you can generate apathy, mm -hmm. you can generate hatred with VR if you really want to. I mean, it, it, I, I'm totally appalled. For example, in the Oculus store, there's like a, a weapons, uh, it's, it's like a, like like a, a simulator, a, a gun like range right. simulator that is, you know, rated 10 and up. And, <laughs> you know, for me, that's so disturbing because, you know, one thing is like, you know, shooting around with a fake gun and super hot or whatever. Another thing is taking a simulated AR-15 and learning how to disassemble it and assemble it and cock and load it and, and, and all these things, you know, and to me, that's actually, you know, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous because, uh, you know, in the wrong hands, you could be training people. I mean, like what's stopping anybody from like training a group of people that way without ever having to buy a gun sure right i mean that should be exclusive to you know police departments to the army you know to people that actually in theory would use those kinds of things responsibly not to the general public and yet this is something that's in vr and it's something that's inside of oculus which is supposed to be like a quote-unquote like family friendly right you know space <laughs> you know so while vr can be truly an empathy machine it can also be everything else so for me it's not any different than 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 film Right. I right. mean, like film can evoke these feelings. Film can evoke uh, somebody to feel happy and uplifted and it can make somebody feel afraid and it can make somebody feel uh, excited and, and, and angry and appalled and make you want to take action. So it's just another medium that has the capacity to really uh, push these emotions. What makes VR different, however, is that it gives you this full full immersion mm -hmm. right so so you're not just passively looking at a screen and looking at what's happening but rather you are there so now to your brain there is no difference between the real experience and the virtual experience because your brain is just receiving input so it just it just takes it as it is so it, it does have this um uh, exponential capacity for all of these ranges of emotions. And you're using them to <laughs> repel a good, interesting story instead of yeah. training people how to use weapons. Sure. Which is, uh, always a, a benefit. Exactly. What, well, what's coming up in the next two chapters of Dreams of the Jaguar's Daughter? And sure. Because, you know, I know the first chapter was uh, meant to be in VR, right, originally? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now it's 360 video, and I'm curious how the, the next two chapters will evolve, too. Yeah, so, so it's really 360 video because that's what Tribeca asked for them, right. from us that the, the, there was five five groups that got a, the grant and they wanted to have a 360 so we ended up pushing it to 360 for that reason but it's actually intended to be a fully interactive six degrees of freedom um vr piece um so in the first chapter you find yourself in central america um talking to a cheek uh again like our central character and she tells you about her family she tells you about what's going on in, in her land she tells you about what you know how she lives and then she starts telling you about you know what what is wrong and what what makes uh what what makes people leave the, this you know otherwise paradisical space mm. um and you set it up in a very beautiful location to start right it is yeah <laughs> Which it's, changes it's a, over the course of the piece exactly a, i mean it, and it truly is like central america is one of the most beautiful places that i've ever seen in my life um and and so um so that's what happens in episode one so you know it's like a, it, the episode is actually called home slash exodus um and in episode two uh we're gonna focus in central mexico which is uh specifically in oaxaca and this is where uh, a lot of people go through and this is like the first stop for people because there you know there's a lot of um a lot of shelters there a lot of places for people to um to stay and also the weather is you know relatively um, passive so you know it's easy to you know sleep on the street if you need to mm. it's easy to like you know um, just kind of like be without much of a worry um, I'm also really uh, interested in, in this tree that lives there called uh, El Arbol del Tule which is a 2000 year old um, 
can't really think of the species in English. Sauce Llorón for anybody that mm. speaks Spanish. Um, uh, willow. It's a willow, mm. a type of willow. Um, and uh, yeah, it's an incredibly beautiful tree. And I, I used to go see it all the time when I was little. My mom's family is from Oaxaca. So we used to go to Oaxaca all the time. And, uh, you know, this tree is just this, you know, it's got this incredible energy. And for me, this tree really represents like a level of anchoring and, and family and stability. So, you know, I wanted to also use this tree as a way of talking about shelter uh, and talking about what what that means, right? Like, what what does it mean to be in this journey and then be able to like take a breather and take a stop. So the second chapter is much more focused on that, but also in the urgency of, of moving, right? So it's about shelter and it's about movement um, because it's only a stop. And then the final chapter, chapter three, is about the desert. Um, and I chose the desert because for me, um, the people that choose to go through the desert, um, it's, it's, one of the most extreme places to cross. And, you know, there's many ways of, of for, that people cross the border. Um, and, you know, for me, the desert is just like this, such a powerful entity, right? Uh, there's all these like stories throughout different religions about like crossing deserts, about, you know, what happens when, you know, this prophet or that prophet goes into the desert for 40 days and hmm. experiences transformation. Um, you know, and, and you know, there, there, there's something about this completely uh, inhospitable land and the, the stark contrast to the lush jungle, right? Like the j lush jungles of Guatemala, the lush mountains of Guatemala, where you know food is abundant. And not to say that the jungle is 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 completely passive, because it's also a very dangerous place if you don't know it. But the desert is almost made to destroy anything that is not from there. So um, for me, that that is like the ultimate challenge. Uh, and, and I've always been, um, every time that I've crossed the border myself, um, you know, and seeing the people that are trying to make this cross unaided, uh, you know, it, it's just such an intense moment. So um, yeah, third chapter is going to focus on, on that final crossing um, and, and, and what those challenges are. And, uh, you know, we met a lot of people um, in the border towns that were getting ready to to go. And, and it's funny, or I don't know if funny is the right word, but it's just interesting to to see them preparing, right? Because it's not just uh it's not just like, oh, I need to have, you know, water, because there's no amount of water you can carry that will suffice. You know, it's not just about like, oh, I need, you know, these survival tools or I need to know where I'm going. It's actually heavily a, a, a mental and, and spiritual preparation that is necessary to to take that step. Um we met a a, a a, a young father who had been deported um, and was uh, actually in a Salvation Army shelter in uh, Tijuana who was about to cross the desert. And he grew up in California. He grew up in, you know, in L.A. And his his kid was in L.A. and his wife is in L.A. And, you know, through some random traffic violation, he was uh, picked up and sent, mm. you know, deported, uh, even though he hardly speaks Spanish and he hardly knows Mexico. And he was set on on crossing the desert. You know, he was like, I've, I've heard how to do it. I've seen people that have succeeded at it. And I feel like I can do it. And, and you know, from there is like they just commend themselves to whatever God they believe in. And then they go. And it's just, you know, it takes this incredible fortitude to try to do that. So chapter three is, is focused on, on those folks and, and, and those stories that we heard. And how do you want people to feel after they've experienced all three chapters? Maybe, maybe like someone in New York, right, tries this out. <laughs> like how do they – what's the emotional uh, level that they're at once they finish all these chapters? Well, like I said earlier, for me, it's really important that, that hope is at the center of all of this. Um, I, I really want people to feel two things. One, that there is a solution, that this isn't the end of it, and that they will, will see eventually uh, in this country uh, compassion – towards those that need it, whether they're immigrants from Central America or from the Middle East, you know, Syria, Lebanon, wherever, you know, like we need to remember that, first of all, you know, this is not our land as quote unquote Americans, right? This is occupied land already. So if, if we have that as a basis, 
why not open it up for others to come and 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 have the same benefits that we all do and you know acknowledge those that were here before us and be able to live in harmony i mean i know that's a lot to ask for <laughs> uh, but i would like to you know the the purpose of this piece is precisely that right to to show the humanity of those that are coming here to show that it's not just a number it's not just thousands of immigrants it's not just you know these like criminals that that are so called by the occupant of the White House, but rather, you know, these are human beings with families and with feelings, and many of them are Americans, as American as anybody else, um, you know, and, and they deserve a chance at a, at a decent life. Um, and their presence here doesn't take away anything from us. In fact, it enriches our experience. And as New Yorkers, we're privileged enough to see that every day. But in many other parts of America, mm. that's not the case. So, you know, the hope is that people can experience this and see that humanity, that reflect that humanity from, from these stories to themselves. Um, and yeah, like I said, you know, get a sense of, of hope and, and maybe a little bit of a sense of, of duty, you know, of like, what can I do from this privileged position um, to make it easier for my sisters and brothers to just live, you know? Uh, one of the most impactful moments during the crossing uh, from Guatemala to Mexico that I, I saw was that once people got to the other side, to the Mexican side, um, there was uh, a group of women from Chiapas, which is the state that they're crossing into. And Chiapas is the most impoverished state in Mexico, which is really intense. Um, and and these groups, this, this group of women, women, mostly elderly women, organized the whole town or a large portion of the town to prepare giant pots of beans and eggs and and tortillas just so that when people crossed over they already mm -hmm. had something to eat this is not red cross this right. isn't you know doctors without borders this isn't any kind of international aid this is just the people and, and you know i would talk to them and they would say you know our sisters and brothers are hungry and are in peril and we're not. And, you know, maybe we're not rich, but we don't, we're not hungry either. Yeah. So now we can help them. And, and to see that, just, just that little bit of compassion going such a long way, you know, I, I feel like we can do that too. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Right. Well, we have everything. I wonder how, how much of that would happen in North America, you know? Well, I, again, I don't see why not. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I've been, to a lot of places in America. And, you know, like I said before, I've encountered racism, I've encountered all these things, but I've also encountered incredible kindness, you know, incredible love for each other. So mm -hmm. I, I don't understand why that just can't be a global thing, but maybe that's a different different conversation <laughs> in history, you know? No, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, this is a tech art podcast, whatever right. that means, right? But <laughs> but at the same time, people often think about tech in this very cold way. Sure. And I really just appreciate the fact that you're using it just as a paintbrush. You're using VR. It's <laughs> just a way to tell this story. It's the perfect way to tell the story, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that speaks a lot for what you're doing. You know, it doesn't have to be about flashy tech. It doesn't have to be about, like, the latest right. machine learning algorithm or something. Like, you have a right. passion for this story. Right. So that's why you've chose this medium to tell it. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's one of the mediums, of course. Yeah. You know, like, um, VR, of course, has this limitation. It's hard to get a lot of people to see it, but that's also what's nice about um, the 360 VR and YouTube because, you know, then it becomes something that a lot of people can see. Right. Um, so, yeah, definitely trying to push it in, in many directions now. I originally was very hesitant about 360, and now uh, since I've seen how many people have been able to experience it just through the YouTube channel, then now I'm like, okay, this is a great way for, for the story to get out. Yeah, and I you hope know. the story keeps going. I mean, I, I'm curious, when is the third part going to be finished? Well, um, so I originally wanted to complete everything for the 2020 uh, festival cycle. You know, that was kind of an ambitious take on it. Uh, but I decided that actually I'm going to use 2020 to complete chapters two and three. Um, you know, I, I really want it to be uh, what it needs to be. And I don't want to rush it just to, you know, be a participant in this festival cycle. Mm -hmm. I, I want it to be solid and I want it to tell the story properly. I'm currently um, connecting with a lot of institutions. For example, there's one here in New York called Mestiza, which is, uh, you know, like a... a Latinx diaspora, a lot of Mexican folks, but, you know, in general, all, all you know, um, Latin American folks uh, coming together. And what I'm trying to do now is um, instead of me just telling the stories that I saw, um, I'm 
trying to get the community more involved to to hear directly from them what it is that they want to tell. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm really trying to make it uh, a lot more of a communal effort, um, so that it you know it's really coming from the people, and I, I'm using my platform and my medium to spread the message that the people are trying to tell. So yeah. that that's that's where I'm at now. Uh, so. Um, if everything goes well, uh, it will be in twenty, like the beginning of twenty twenty one. So January twenty twenty one is when it should be out in public and ready to go. Right, I can't as, wait. as well as an, uh, with a full installation and everything. So that's you know truly the complete vision. Yeah, and, yeah. and dreams of the jaguar's daughter uh, part one is already on YouTube, so you can check that out. And we'll link to it too in the um, in this post. Um, so I also want to talk about uh, Demoda. Sweet. So you were the co-founder of Demoda, the Digital Museum of Digital Art. Is yes, that right? That's right. <laughs> how did right. that come about? Like, where did that, this idea come from, and how yeah. does it work? We wanted to make it redundant on purpose. Yeah, right? digital <laughs> no, like that. Yeah. Museum of Digital Art. Um, yeah. So, so that came uh, actually like back to what I was talking about earlier about the dirty new media scene in Chicago and the glitch scene. Um, so you know, I was studying at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, um, and like I said. I came from sculpture. I came from installation. So, you know, I'm very involved in the art world. Um, and once I started getting into tech um, as part of my repertoire, I realized very quickly that, that the art world is actually a very slow-moving animal and that, you know, it does not adapt well to new ideas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they want to see paintings, they want to see sculptures, and they want to see things that are flat and they fit on the wall and you can sell for $3,000 easily, right? And, and that's cool and, and whatever. But, you know, for me, when I discovered the power of, of, of media as an artistic media, as an artistic form of expression, um, you know, I wanted to put it into a museum. I wanted to put it into galleries. And um, so, it, you know, it, it was something that I felt, you know, like an animated GIF should stand next to a painting and receive the same level of appreciation and the same level of, of reverence and respect. But of course, that wasn't the case then. It still isn't the case now, even though things are moving, but like I said, slow moving animal. Uh, so, uh, there were a few things that I started doing as a way to combat this, right? So the first thing that I did was a project called Street Team uh, that was actually me with a micro projector curating a series of gifts from artists online, um, putting them all in this micro projector, st sticking in a bag that museums would let me go in mm. with, and then just setting up an installation, you know, setting up a little tripod with a little micro projector and putting an animated GIF next to like Rembrandt and next to Rodin, next to, you know, Picasso's and whoever, you know. And so the museums um, didn't know you were coming to do this. Like, No, just, they had yeah. no idea. So I would just, you know, like do it uh, kind of like impromptu and then document it. And then, you know, the documentation would become the exhibition. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, it was like semi-performative, semi, -performative, semi uh, uh, street art, semi-net art, all of these things. Were they your works or were they other No, people? no, I, I was functioning as a curator. I mean, sometimes I would put my own work there too, but it was mostly, I was curating it. So it was kind of like the the beginning of this idea. Uh, later on, um, I started getting really into video game engines as a way of uh, making art. Uh, and then my colleague, Will Robertson, who ended up becoming my business partner in Demoda, um, you know, he was also doing a lot of the same. And we were both really involved with this glitch scene and a lot of noise shows. And, um, you know, we would do like a lot of like audiovisual performances using Unity. Um, and uh, this is back in like 2011, uh, 2011, 2012. Um, and you know, it was, it was dope. It was a great scene. Uh, but it was all taking place in like grungy basements mm -hmm. in Chicago. It was all, you know, kind of like very DIY, you know, a bunch of like bearded dudes that smell like beer all the time kind of, <laughs> kind of scene, you know, which is, is cool and it has its place and everything. You know, a lot of people would show up to these shows. It was amazing. Actually, Will was running a, a space, um, formerly called Enemy that became Tri-Triangle that was kind of like the hub of these performances in Chicago. So it was like, you know, amazing. There was even a, a glitch festival in 2011 and 12 that congregated there. And, you know, people from all over the world came to show their work, to, you know, like show what they were working on, to to share ideas. Um, it, was, it was an amazing energy. But nonetheless, it received no attention from the traditional art world, right? Um, so, you know, through all these festivals and happenings, uh, Will and I started talking about this and we decided like, look, like 
why not just make our own space? You know, if, if the museums won't give us a show with this stuff that we think is amazing, why not just make our own museum? Mm -hmm. What's stopping us, you know? And right as we are talking about this, VR comes into place. So it was too early 2013, the first Oculus DK1 rolls in. And then we're like, you know what? The most native and pure way to to see a, a, a VR artwork or just like a digital artwork is inside of the machine. Yeah. You know? Like that, that's the true native way of experiencing, not on the screen, not through the internet, but like in it, right? Um, so we got super stoked about this idea and we decided, okay, Demoda is going to be in VR. So in 2015, we launched our first exhibition um, and it was, it was really, uh, I mean, you know, I, I feel like it was a really successful endeavor. I mean, it was like nobody was really doing VR, I mean, it, you know, it was like barely being born again, I guess, for like the yeah. third time or something. Uh, but it was like kind of coming back into into these worlds and like, you know, people were finally understanding, you know, what this meant again. And we just like came at it with a virtual museum that was promoting virtual artists, you know. And how did, um, the, how did the experience work? Like, are you inside of a museum or are you just, are you experiencing the different pieces immediately when you put on the headset? Yeah, so, so we also wanted to like really push this angle of the museum right mm -hmm. so you know a lot of people ask us like why isn't it just a gallery instead of a museum and the answer to that is like you know the, the word museum itself as a concept has this very specific connotation and this very kind of like grandiose air that a gallery doesn't have and we wanted to you know like i said we wanted to elevate this work to the same level as as the museum so we wanted to push that and as part of pushing that we also wanted to create sort sort of like a, a relatable uh, space. So we um, decided as a rule that we would always have a, a building that would be this museum building. And then within the museum, you would find portals and each portal would take you to the artist's works, which could be, you know, infinitely expansive or whatever they wanted it to be. Um, so, you know, every, every iteration of Dimora, we've actually uh, created new museums, um, you know, to go along with it. So it's another nice thing and and now we're actually collaborating with architects actually Dimoto 3.0 we collaborated with a Singaporean architect to create our museum this time we're collaborating with uh this uh Iraqi um architect uh in order to to recreate this this new piece uh we're actually working on Dimoto 4.0 which is due out um in the first quarter of 2020 so keep an eye out for that um and it's been curated by Christiana Paul uh, which, who is the uh, new media curator for the Whitney Museum. So um, we're very excited to to be working with her and, you know, to be thinking about these topics, you know, with somebody that's a veteran of the field. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's really interesting to, to like, you know, think about all these things, it's not, not just artworks, but it's also like architecture is like, you know, spatial installation. It's like, you know, how do you get people to experience virtual reality, um, in, in this kind of contemplative artistic space versus, you know, the commercial, like, you know, shooting game styles, you know, like a lot of people come to the motor and they ask like, how do we shoot? And it's like, oh, you <laughs> There's don't. There's no shooting here in the museum. Yeah. You don't shoot. Is there... <laughs> It's interesting hearing you talk about it. Like you started off sort of as this like punk rock aesthetic for Demoda, totally. but now you've got the Whitney curator working right. on it. Is there a danger that you're becoming the institution? In, yeah, in we, al we always kind of joke about it. I mean, you know, we are a, 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 an LLC, you know, like we're a company now. And um, so, so there is like a level of like institutionalization that is happening. Um, but, you know, the, the spirit of punk never dies, you know, and <laughs> and that's really the the like what keeps us going is like you know we're we're breaking rules i mean we're establishing rules that we're creating for ourselves but then we're also like breaking new ones you know or breaking old ones rather and um so so you know it's it's still it's still something that i feel like has uh a lot of potential for exploration. I mean, we've hardly scratched the surface and, you know, every year there's like all this new gear. So that gives us new opportunities to uh, experiment with the experiences in, in a completely new way. You know, like with the with the Oculus Quest coming out with all these, uh, you know, no controllers and like hand tracking, like all of these are amazing things that we've been dreaming about, you know? Um, and it's only been like, you know, either 
kind of like halfway possible or like, you know, we have to use the controllers as a stand-in and it's not quite the same or it's not quite as intuitive, but everything is just accelerating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel like within the next few years, it's just going to be, you know, we're going to be able to finally fulfill all the fantasies that we've had about that we can do in Dimora, you know. Do you think that VR in museums is... um like, do you think VR headsets will become a, a natural part of museums? Do you think that they're, it's better suited to what you're doing where you experience it outside of a museum and the museum is entirely virtual? I mean, I don't know if it's going to be adapted by museums themselves, but I do think it's an amazing tool for any level of experiences, right? I think it's going to become a much more common tool for entertainment in general. Mm. What, what I really would like to see, actually, it's, you know, um, headsets that are you know, mixed reality headsets, you know, like AR, VR, and that's already happening uh, with varying degrees of success. Um, so I really think that that should be it, you know, like something that you can just be wearing on a day-to-day basis, you know, riding your bike and getting info about, you know, uh, you know, whatever, like temperature and mm. GPS and, you know, proximity of vehicles. And then you can, you know, sit down in your living room and like just switch them to VR mode. And then suddenly you're like hanging out with your friends and some crazy like hacker central, whatever, you know, so you're not like worried about, about like the exclusion, like the idea that we're being uh, separated from people as much. You think that will be more of a heads up? Yeah. I mean, I think it should be a mix. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't really like the idea of exclusion, but at the same time, you know, like we've already entered a new era of human interaction like we we're deep in it right like you know you don't ask for people's numbers anymore you ask for their instagram or their facebook or you know like you like i mean back in uh uh, 2010 ish uh, most of the artists that i became friends with that were doing media work that were doing interesting things none of them lived near me you know i I was hanging out online and talking to to people uh, in facebook groups you know uh, I recently just met this uh, really cool Canadian artist, Erica Lapdat Jansen, who um, I've known her for like seven years and I just met her in real wow. life uh, a few weeks ago, right? Um, but we've been friends for that long and this wouldn't be possible without the internet. And, you know, our friendship didn't feel uh, new. You know, it felt like, oh, I'm, I'm visiting an old friend. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I feel like what's going to happen next, especially since uh, Zuckerberg announced all this new stuff at OC6 this year, you know, announcing the, uh, what, what are they called? It's not the Oasis, it's the uh, Horizon, <laughs> right, yeah. which is basically the Oasis or the Metaverse or cyberspace, whatever you want to call it. Um you know, it's going to be a new way of socializing. Now, of course, like we were saying earlier, double-edged sword or, you know, multi-edged sword. Right. right? Who controls the horizon is the exactly. part, right? Who controls the horizon? And it's, of course, Facebook, which is already problematic. You know, being both the good guys and the bad guys from Ready Player One. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm curious as to how that's going to evolve, but I do think it's going to be a new way of interacting with each other. Hopefully for the better. Hopefully it would allow us to, you know, meet people from all over the world a lot a lot easier uh you know back to dreams of the jaguar's daughter i always think wouldn't it be dope for this piece to be given to some kid in rural alabama that has never Hmm. you know had a conversation with a latin american person you know and just like let them see what people have gone through and then maybe they would see that actually they're not so different from from me you know these are just people that want to live you know so, so I, I think that in that sense, VR has that like amazing capacity and hopefully it will become more commonplace and people will be able to have these experiences, even if they're not, you know, physically able to leave their homes or, you know, they're not able because of monetary reasons or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah. I think, I hope that, uh, for every big corporation that's working in this space, that there's also, you know, 10 artists that are thinking about how to subvert it and yeah. use it for more human <laughs> ways, you know? Me too. And, and I, honestly, I, I think it would be great for these, you know, big people like Google, Facebook, even Amazon, which is massively problematic right now, you know, to start taking on, uh, you know, artists and academics and, activists and scientists and bring them together and you know talking about like okay what should this new 
horizon be? Mm-hmm. You know, what 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 should it look like? How can we make it more inclusive? You know, um, it used to be that all these you know big companies would have artists in residence. You know, even in the fifties right. and sixties, there would be like sure. the artists in residence at Ford or something. You know, exactly. <laughs> and now, I mean, I don't understand why the big tech companies. Some of them do, but they're they're do. also very controlled and exactly uh, uh, specific. Yeah. Uh, right, like they don't want anybody that's you know talking about the intricacies of like why Facebook is problematic to, right, at Facebook. <laughs> to control Horizon. You know, they just want somebody that makes cool like VR drawings, you know. Right. So, but but at the same time, the, you know, they really should be listening because uh, ultimately, you know, it would be beneficial for them as well, right? Like if, if they create uh, a, a world that is inclusive and that people of all backgrounds feel safe and honored in those spaces and why not? Like you create a space where everybody can hang out and you profit and, you know, people feel good about it. You know, so like, I think it would be beneficial for everybody to, to yeah. have that conversation. No, that's great. Yeah. All right. So um, as we kind of reached the end of this interview already, <laughs> uh, we always end with some rapid fire questions for our guests. Gotcha. All right. uh, so these are just kind of, you know, crazy questions. It's just the first thing that pops in your mind. <laughs> okay. uh, don't think about it too much. Okay, okay. Uh, so we'll start here with the somewhat related one. Uh, what is your favorite museum in the world and why? In the world, the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. Mm. It's incredible. And, you know, every time uh, for me going there is like going to church. You know, it's like I'm, I'm going there and I'm seeing my ancestors and I'm seeing, uh, you know, I, I stand in awe at the things that they produced. And um, it's really nice that, you know, these objects that belong in that space are still there, you know, just in a, in a new temple, if you will. So that's my favorite one. All right, great. Yeah. Um, if you could have dinner with one person living or dead, who would it be and what would you eat? Oh my God, that's a really hard question. <laughs> These are actually harder dead. than a lot of the interview questions I found. People, yeah, that's know. a tough one. Okay, let me give it a quick second. If You know who I would love to have met? Uh, Louise Bourgeois. Hmm. She was a, a sculptor. She died in 2010 and I almost cried. And she was one of my favorite artists. So actually, can we make it a double date? Sure. Louise Bourgeois <laughs> and Saha Hadid, the architect. Okay. Both dead. Wow, uh, where would you go to dinner with them? Um, <laughs> you know, I would probably just make dinner at my house yeah. and I would make them both tacos based on their work. That's what <laughs> What's I would What does a taco look like? Probably just really weird. <laughs> a lot of tortillas stacked on top of each other. Yeah. And then... Louise Bourgeois would probably have to be something with bugs in it. So, <laughs> Bug tacos. Yeah, cricket yeah. tacos. Crickets. Know? Yeah, they're yeah. good. Uh, what's one movie you'd watch till the end whenever it comes on? The Matrix. <laughs> Every time. I can't. That's a surprise If I, to me if I start reason. watching it, I can't yeah. stop until the end. <laughs> Alfredo, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so uh, we're much. We're going to post links to your work. And everybody, please go check out Dreams of the Jaguar's Daughter, uh, the first chapter, and then hopefully the next two chapters in twenty. 21. (laughs) We'll hold you to it. All right. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, This is Gabe Garcia Colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, We have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. uh, And our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, So stay tuned for next week. Uh, We're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it. Bye.